All right. I don't know why it died. I switched it off and then back on again. Uh, hopefully it stays on. Let's just pray for that. <laughs> um, and Lord, we also pray for the microphone that it will remain working. <laughs> I'm not loud enough. Um, throughout American history, there have been many tremendously influential people that uh, have incredible flaws, and yet they have helped shape the culture and character of our society. Perhaps the most celebrated American of all time is our first president, George Washington. Uh, worthy of celebration for sure, but Washington was a plantation owner who employed numerous slaves, as did many of our nation's founders. He nevertheless made a permanent mark on the world with his profoundly significant role in defeating the British Army and establishing the free constitutional republic that we live in today and that we will celebrate tomorrow, um, which we love. Abraham Lincoln, another very celebrated man, he drove the effort to end slavery entirely, even though he was a bit of a racist himself. Well, they probably all were back then. We need to judge people in their own time period. We often define people by their legacy and who they really were ends up getting buried. Few people would offer up the fact that Harriet Tubman was a gun-toting Republican. Republicans don't talk about her all that much today, and the more liberal of the civil rights crowd don't like to mention the part about her being a gun-toting Republican. Martin Luther King Jr., he was probably the most prolific civil rights leader since the Civil War. He had some incredible flaws. As a pastor, his theology had some real problems. And as a husband, let's say his faithfulness had some real problems. But his understanding of loving your enemies, of civil peace, of forgiveness and reconciliation was nothing short of brilliant. I'll quote him a few, a few times this morning because he, his poetic way of, of expressing that particular biblical truth surrounding forgiveness and loving your enemies is just profound. He had a deep understanding of this passage that we are looking at today. In the famous speech, Loving Your Enemies, this is what he said. Let us be practical and ask the question, how do we love our enemies? First, we must develop and maintain the capacity to forgive. He who is devoid of the power to forgive is devoid of the power to love. It is impossible even to begin the act of loving one's enemies without the prior acceptance of the necessity over and over again of forgiving those who inflict evil and injury upon us. Following the lynching of 14-year-old Emmett Till on August 28, 1955, the battle for civil rights of black people in the South was thrust into an increasingly contentious and violent theater. Black people in the South were unfairly and horribly mistreated, abused, and dehumanized to the point even of being murdered and lynched oftentimes. The Ku Klux Klan, uh, which 
had been started after the Civil War by Southern Democrats to promote white supremacy in the face of post-war freedom of the slaves was now in an all-out battle for political influence to prevent having to share their liberties and having to integrate with black people whom they believed were an inferior and subhuman race. The amount of hatred that targeted black people in the South coupled with the political influence of the KKK left black Southerners with little recourse. And in the midst of all of his flaws, Dr. King preached relentlessly to his black brothers and sisters to avoid returning hate for hate, to resist the urge to retaliate, and to meet the hatred that they faced daily with love and forgiveness. It's a very similar message to what we see Jesus preaching today in Luke chapter 6, and a message I think many in our society have forgotten. Let's go ahead and look there in Luke chapter 6. Verse 27 begins, But I say to you who hear. Now remember last week that he had directed his attention to his disciples, uh, specifically within the crowd. But now... He's speaking to those who hear. It could be either a larger or smaller group, but assuming that all the disciples were listening, we would assume it's a larger group. That said, he isn't speaking to everybody who isn't deaf. The word translated here is, is a present active participle, which, is, which in this case is a verb indicating that something is presently and actively being done. The word is connected to obedience. Some extended, an expanded translation might be, I say to you who are heeding my instruction, or I say to you who are actively obeying me. And what he's going to present here is still at odds with conventional wisdom, like we read last week in verses 20 through 26. Let's go ahead and read that. So move back a little bit to verse 20. It says, and he lifted his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day. And leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, and for so their fathers did to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. And then we continue on. In verse 27, it says, But I say to you here, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you. Here we get into the meat of Christ's teaching in this section. He's saying to do something that none of us naturally do. How many of us can say, I love loving my enemies? Right? No hands? Good. You're not lying. Um, it seems to fly in the face of the Psalms. Some of them at least. Where it says in Psalm 143, verse 12, And in your steadfast love you will cut off my enemies. You will destroy all the adversaries of my soul, for I am your servant. <coughs> now remember, 
the Psalms are a human response to God's character. And this is true that God does that work. But while they're divinely inspired, they, they can oftentimes be more descriptive than prescriptive, like much of the history that we read in the Old Testament. Not everything recorded in Scripture necessarily reveals God's approval of it. Uh, and so although the, the, this passage is true, it may simply be recorded not, not as something that God war, wants our hearts to be in a place of wanting that vengeance. Why was Jonah angry with God for sparing the Ninevites? The, the Ninevites were Assyrians. They were enemies of his people. They had abused and oppressed them horribly by dragging them into slavery with hooks and fetters. Jonah was mad because the Assyrians had caused incredible pain and suffering in his mind, and they should pay for it. Here's what he says to God in Jonah chapter 4. Jonah chapter 4, verse 2 and 3. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O oh Lord, is this not what I said when I was in my own country? This is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Kind of a weird thing to be angry with God for, but when it's directed at your enemies, right? Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it's better for me to die than to live. I'd say he was upset. Jonah was upset because it goes against human nature to be loving towards those who are intent on your harm. Here in Luke, Jesus is saying to love your enemies. The word agapate, it's translated love. It's also a verb. Those who are listening should also be loving towards their enemies. It's also important to note that the Greco-Roman culture that prevailed in the Roman Empire of the time, this idea would have been completely foreign to them. It would have been a completely foreign ethic. Love was rooted in more of kind of a quid pro quo ethic in which people would give to others based on what others had given or would give to them. There are several words in the Greek language that we translate with our single English word love. Examples would be, for example, eros, which is the romantic kind of love. Uh, phileo, which would be the brotherly love or that kind of love found in a good friendship. Um, but agape supersedes natural inclinations. It's a deliberate love that's rooted in the will. It's basically commitment to serve the good of the object of that love. Jesus is telling those who will listen to give that kind of love to their enemies. And that's in the general sense. It could be a personal, political, religious enemy, um, any kind of enemy. So when people out there are opposing us, for example, because they hate that Roe was overturned, something that we've been praying for for a long time, uh, we should offer them some water, right? Because all that angry yelling and screaming is going to dry out their throats. They're going to probably need a drink of water. So we could, you know, or whatever it might be, right? And while they're drinking, instead of yelling, maybe they'll listen to reason. Who knows? But the point is that we are doing good. We need to do good to them, even some of whom would probably burn our church down if they could get away with it. It's been threatened. So what good can we do for them? What good could we do for them? This is what R.C. Sprawl said about doing good to those who hate you. 
He says that's what it means to love your enemies, to do, to do good for them. It's not just a feeling. It's not just, oh, I love my enemies, sort of, kind of. Oh, I would never do something good for them, but I, no, it's doing good. That always goes against what we want to do. I mean, who, who here has an enemy? Somebody hurts them, and, they just, and, and, and the first thought is, oh, what good things can I do to them? No? Nobody? Okay, still no liars. Good. Um, right? We have to recognize that love is not an emotional feeling. It's an action. It's something that we do. Some of us are, some of us are just simply more likable than others, right? But n- nonetheless, each of us will face people in our lives that don't like us. I am definitely no stranger to that. Most of the time that somebody doesn't like me, it's because of something I did or said. Oftentimes it's because they either assumed something about me or misunderstood something I did or something I said. Sometimes people just hate me for no rational reason at all or for something that I have no control over. Once again, most of the time it's my fault. But I, I treat, I must treat them. I don't. I must treat them. I try to treat them, but I fail. I must treat them as one whom I have no trouble loving. doesn't matter why they hate us. We must, as Christians, if we're to be like Jesus, love them. Hate. Hate grows out of pride. It grows out of ignorance and prejudice and misunderstanding. And if I meet hate with hate, I'm also proud, ignorant, prejudiced, and unwilling to understand others. When I confront hate with love, I then am diffusing that hate. I, I've, I've stopped it. I, I've slowed the spread of hate when I confront it with love. Verse 28, Luke 6, 28, it says, Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. It just keeps getting easier, doesn't it? Right? To those who wish evil, harm, and doom would come upon you, instead wish upon them blessing, prosperity, and good things. Who thinks that's easy? <laughs> right? Still no liars? No? Nobody? Okay. Um, it's, it's, it's a difficult thing. Our impulse is to respond in kind, isn't it? Try this. Right now, we're going to try this. I want to do an exercise here, okay? Make a mental note of a, a co-worker, neighbor, teacher, student, somebody, uh, whoever's a real problem for you. Okay, think about that person. You got that person? You're envisioning who that is? Okay. Now, pray for them at least daily. Now, and I don't mean, like, don't be asking God, for God to show them the error of their ways or asking for some kind of justice or that they would get what's coming to them. None of that. Pray that God blesses them. Think about that person in your mind. Pray that God blesses them. See, a curse is to wish harm. To bless is to wish good. Will you, will you pray that God blesses them exceedingly? That's the principle that Jesus is teaching. It's the opposite of retaliation. Look how Jesus prayed for the people who nailed him to the cross. That was an act of love, right? Nailing Jesus to the cross. No, that was, that was pretty mean, right? Like if anybody's being abused, it's Jesus here, right? Luke 23, starting in verse 33. Luke 23, 33. When they... 
When they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him. And the criminals, one on his right, one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, smite them. No, he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments, and the people stood by watching. But the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others? Let him save himself, if he's the Christ of God, the chosen one. Jesus wished well for his abusers. And at the time, it didn't have any effect on their hearts. It didn't have any effect on the hearts of the people at that moment. It didn't matter. Jesus prayed for their good while they were harming and abusing him. That's a tough act to follow. Verse 29, Luke 6, 29. To the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. Now, loving your enemies is hard. So Jesus continues his narrative by telling us in more detail how to do it. Because um, he knows it's not easy, and he knows we're going to need instruction. Um, and we know, he knows it's going to go against our nature. Now, traditionally at that time, it would be very common for somebody to take the back of their right hand to smack the right cheek of somebody, right? It was, it, it was, a backhand was a Jewish insult. It was seen as incredibly insulting and degrading to slap somebody with the back of your right hand like that. And so Jesus is saying not to return an insult for an insult, but to just let them continue insulting you. Goes, goes beyond basic forgiveness. This is the kind of forgiveness that allows yourself to continue being taken advantage of, insulted, or hurt. Doesn't necessarily mean that once somebody stops beating you up, you run after them. No, no, wait, don't go keep beating me up. Like, don't go, Colonel Mustard, keep hitting me in the can with the candlestick in the library. A little clue joke there. Um, but, but it implies that when, when we forgive... We open ourselves up to be vulnerable to being hurt again. When we forgive somebody, we relinquish our right to be angry, to hold the wrong that has been done against the person whom we've forgiven from, for doing the wrong. We don't get to hold that against them. If I forgive a debt, I'm relinquishing the right to be repaid, and I'm treating the person as if they had never owed me in the first place. You know what that means? That means that if I'm truly forgiving that person, I would be willing to lend to them again. I think there are cases in which restored trust needs to have limits. For example, not concerning myself, but others, uh, if somebody was to hurt one of my kids, okay, I'm called to forgive them. Not going to want to. That's probably my weakest spot right there. But that doesn't necessarily trump my responsibility to protect my children. So I can forgive the person and keep them away from my kids, right? Like if you're on Megan's list, right? Um, you know, and, and let's say you're on Megan's list. You've repented of your sins. You love Jesus. We love you. Uh, we invite you to worship alongside of us, to be a part of this church. But there's going to be limitations as to where you can go and where you can serve at IBC. You're not going to be working with the kids and hanging out near the classrooms. That's just protecting and loving the kids, right? If you've repented, Jesus has forgiven you, and so have we. Jesus loves you, and so do we. 
and that could be, you know, Megan's list, that could be somebody who's committed a felony, whatever, murders, whatever it might be. Somebody who's hurt us, somebody who's even stolen from the church maybe, I don't know. But we forgive you, we love you. Jesus isn't saying, though, that that means we're going to put other vulnerable people at risk in the name of not holding sin against somebody. But the flip side of that coin is that if you have been tempted in that area, we wouldn't be loving you by putting you somewhere that might tempt you to sin or harbor sinful thoughts or desires, right? See, forgiveness doesn't absolve us from the responsibility to love our neighbor and to shepherd the flock. Nevertheless, when we forgive, we must be willing to open ourselves up to further pain. In Christ's narrative about church discipline, Peter challenged Christ's principle of reconciliation here. He says in, uh, in Matthew 18, verse 21 to 22, Matthew 18, 21, then Peter came and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? And Jesus said to him, I did not say seven times, but 77 times, or 70 times seven, which is what most of our translations say. 70 times seven is 490. That was euphemistic of unlimited forgiveness, right? That was like an eternal number. So Martin Luther King, King Jr. said of this passage, he said, a man cannot forgive up to 490 times without forgiveness becoming a part of the habit structure of his being. Forgiveness is not an occasional act. It's a permanent attitude. That's a powerful statement, but even more powerful when you consider the source. Jesus is insisting that we return good for violence done against us. Dr. King said, another thing that we had to get over was the fact that the nonviolent resistor does not seek to humiliate or defeat the opponent, but to win his friendship and understanding. This was always the cry that we had to set before people, that our aim is not to defeat the white community, not to humiliate the white community, but to win the friendship of all the persons who had perpetrated the system in the past. The end of violence, or the aftermath of violence, is bitterness. The aftermath of nonviolence is reconciliation and the creation of a beloved community. Back in Luke 6, Jesus continues in verse 29, And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Now the word construction here in Luke indicates that this is dealing with banditry or being robbed, right? A robber would be able to take the outer garment first, right? Snatch it off of you. But notice that the robber here isn't, he's not trying to clean you out. He's taking something that if we're giving the benefit of the doubt, he presumably needs, and then he's leaving you alone. So in this case, Jesus is saying to turn what was an act of crime on his part to an act of charity on your part. I used to attend this theological conference outside of Philadelphia each year, and um, one year I had this, I'd been given this really expensive leather motorcycle jacket. And, and out there, you know, you, you, you have to wear leather. There's nothing else that'll break that cold when you're, and, and so I hung it up in the foyer of this um, church that this conference was in, as you do in Northeastern churches, because, 
you know, the walls are lined with coat racks. Uh, there are like three months of the year that you don't wear a coat. Um, and so, thank God for California, right? But, so I go to leave the conference, and guess what's not on the coat rack? I was fuming. I was so angry. I was, I was fuming. Why would somebody steal a coat at a conference on theology? Who goes to theological conferences and then steals a coat? Like, and I loved that jacket. It was warm. It had a removable liner so I could ride that much more with that jacket. And the leather was just so thick and so soft. It was just, and it had this heavy-duty zipper. I felt so violated, right? Like, it was mine. Here's the thing. Even if the person who stole that jacket, even if they needed it more than I did, it was mine. I owned it. And listen, I was going to seminary full-time. The person going to the theological conference stole a jacket from a seminary student. Like, right? It's not like I had four or $500 just sitting there where I could go buy another one. I, I, was, I was broke, right? In fact, that year, I, I, I don't remember how long, but it was like a couple of months that I had to wait longer to start riding my motorcycle because I didn't have a jacket. It was too cold to ride without it. And that jacket that was stolen was mine. I had a right to it. The person who stole it had no right to that jacket. Now, if I were able to track this person down, what does Jesus say to do there, there in Luke? Right? You go into the sanctuary, grab a couple of Bibles, right? And then you go and you find him and say, excuse me, sir, and clap him in the head and take the jacket back. No. That's not what it says. That might be what the natural Jeff would want to do. That's not what the Bible says to do. Right? What would, the, what would Jesus say to do? Well, here, why don't you take my flannel too, sir? I think you might need it more than I do. That is not my natural inclination. But that's, that's the character that Jesus wants us to have. He wants us to go against our conventional wisdom, to go against our desires, and to love. See, compassion towards those who hurt us is a critical part of love. To those who wish harm on me, I am to wish blessing upon. To those who take from me, I am to respond by giving to them. Instead of reciprocating, do the opposite. Go against conventional wisdom. Give, it says in verse 30. Give to everyone who begs of you. And from one, one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. Any ever, anybody ever lend out a tool? And then you want it back? Like a, this is why I don't lend out power tools. No, I just get, right? Like, along with the disposition of forgiveness, we also need our lives to be defined by the character of compassion. Help those who ask for help. Poverty is a, a significant problem throughout the Roman Empire at the time. 
But when people would help the poor, it was expected that they would reciprocate it in some equally valuable way. And so what would happen is the one receiving help became indebted to the one helping, and the weight of that debt became insurmountable to many of them. Sympathy and mercy were simply not part of the culture. And so any giving was governed by the principle of quid pro quo, one thing in return for another. True charity, as we know it today, was just a foreign concept. Mercy is at the root of sincere charity. So the, the ideas of full forgiveness and charity were novel concepts as Jesus is preaching them um, because the Greco-Roman culture was functionally a merciless culture. And, the, and the, even the Jews at the time would have been highly influenced by that although they would have had more of an idea of mercy. But as Luke is sharing this to Theophilus and the Greeks, they would be reading this going, whoa, this is incredible. So even though the Roman culture was a relatively advanced cult, culture, by t even by today's standards, mercy was just simply not known. And even though the kind of mercy Jesus was promoting was absurd by Greco-Roman standards, there was some practicality to it but a little bit less practicality than I think we notice. This passage is where we land on what's known today as the golden rule. It seems very practical, right? You, you, you treat others the way that you want to be treated, and they'll treat you in kind. Well, that's not what this is saying. On the surface, it seems to be intuitive. Verse 31, as you wish others would do to you, do so to them. But see, that's not speaking of a give-and-take relationship. It's not quid pro quo. This is saying that you are to treat others the way that you treat, or the way that you wish that they would treat you. It's not suggesting that you might expect the other party to reciprocate or that you would, they would change their behavior or that you would change your behavior if you don't reciprocate or if they don't. What Jesus is saying is that regardless of how others treat you, you are to treat them the way you wish they would be treating you. A little less practical than we first, when we first read it, huh? In this whole passage, Jesus isn't indicating any kind of reciprocation whatsoever. He's not telling us how to get along in society. And Martin Luther King indicated that some of these principles can lead to reconciliation. But according to Jesus, that's not the goal. The goal is to be like him. So following, his following reasoning is that we're to live in contrast to conventional wisdom and that our kindness is to go beyond cultural expectations. Verse 32, if you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. The love that we are commanded by Christ to have for others goes beyond conventional wisdom. What good does it do for us if we live by this you scratch my back and I'll scratch yours mentality like the rest of the world? The rest of the world is corrupt and Christ is working perfection in us. Ephesians 4. Ephesians 4 verses 17 to 24. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds, 
They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you've heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. To put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Do you, do you remember, I, I don't know if you, any of you had like the Not of This World t-shirt. You remember Not of This World? It was like kind of that fad that made its way through pop Christianity in like the late 90s and early 2000s. And what ended up happening was that the focus was really on being different as Christians, like our passion passage teaches here. But, but I think we often didn't look at the heart issues really the way we should um, that are expressed in the Bible. Instead, I think we made like this contrast between our culture and the culture around us. And so our goal became looking different, but kind of the same. Like, because we still put flames on our shorts and on our shoes, and we had spiky hair with frosted tips and a real edgy look. Like, right, when I was a youth pastor, we hired the band Cutlass to play at a youth event. And the bassist from Cutlass was this tall, bald guy that had flame sideburns shaved into the side of his face. They were dyed different colors and everything because he was edgy. Um, and <laughs> but the, the differences that we had were centered on external behaviors, right? It became more about acting different than being different. There's a difference. And then we ended up just kind of being different for the sake of being different. People thought we were not of this world. They figured we were from a completely different planet, right? There, listen, there, there's going to be some external differences when we follow Jesus. There will be. That's the only natural income, or rather outcome, rather, of, of the real differences that will be made in us in many cases. These are differences, though, that take place in the heart. You can slap on a not of this world t-shirt and get a you know mug that says body piercings saved me and you can you know have a belt with spikes on it you can do all that and then and 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 say you're a christian and act like a christian and not be a christian it's much easier to act differently than it is to love differently Loving differently is precisely what Jesus is speaking of here. What good is it to you or to God's glory if you only love as the rest of the world loves? Their love doesn't come from the Holy Spirit and is thus a corrupted form of love. Here's what Kent Hughes said. Jesus discourages, discourages any self-congratulation for reciprocal morality. We love people who love us. Big deal. So did Hitler and Stalin. There's simply no credit for natural love. Continuing in Luke 6, verse 33, and if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. Again, quid pro quo. It's the natural order of things. That's all the love we can offer apart from the Holy Spirit working in our lives. 
We need to trust him. For even sinners do the same. More specifically, even those who are sinning or those who live sinfully do the same. But when the Holy Spirit dwells in us, God frees us from the bondage of our sin. He gives us the ability to love others as he does. Verse 34, if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. Now, let me ask you this. Is there such thing as a Christian loan shark? No? Usually they have Italian accent, like, like, like Brooklyn accents. They're Italian. They wear a lot of gold chain. No, I'm just kidding. But, right, no, there's no such thing as a Christian loan shark. It goes against, in fact, here's an interesting fact. Under Jewish law, charging interest was actually prohibited if you're lending to another Jew. Deuteronomy 23, 19, and 20 says, You shall not charge interest on loans to your brother, interest on money, interest on food, interest on anything that is lent for interest. You may charge a foreigner interest, but you may not charge your brother interest that the Lord your God may bless you in all that you undertake in the land that you are entering to take possession of. Now, if that principle were to apply to the new covenant, we would not be permitted to charge interest to other Christians, right? But that's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is taking it further than that, isn't he? Jesus says to lend money and not even expect to be repaid what we've been lent. Anybody done lending now? No, just, right? No. Even those who are sinning will lend to each other without interest at times. Have you ever bought a fridge for 0% interest over 12 months? Anybody ever done that? Right, and then found out that if you don't pay it off in those 12 months, you pay all the back interest that you would have paid had you not paid it off in the 12 months at a rate of like 18 or 21%, whatever they're charging you, right? That, that's how they get you. They know that you're not likely to pay for the fridge in 12 months if you had to put the fridge on a credit card. So they're probably gonna make sure they profit off of you anyway, right? But, but here's the thing. If you do pay it off, you're not gonna pay any interest. They, they keep their word. They do. They keep their word. You pay no interest if you pay it off in 12 months. And that's a credit card company. Here's what Jesus is saying. Listen carefully. If you lend with no interest expecting to be repaid, you're no better than a credit card company. How many of us love credit card companies? Mm. That's harsh a little bit, I think. Verse 35. Luke 6, 35, but love your enemies and do good and lend expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High for he is kind to the ungrateful and evil. See, Jesus is recapping the whole thing here. Love your enemies, do good, lend expecting nothing in return. If we do those things, Jesus is saying that we will receive a great reward and we'll be like the most high God. That's what we want if we're made in his image, right? As Christians, we need to be looking out for the interests of others. Our concern must be for the concerns of others, regardless of how that benefits us here and now. If we are to obey Jesus and be like him, that is who we are to be. And the love that he is called the love that he's called us to begins with mercy and forgiveness 
which are joined at the hip. Mercy and forgiveness can't be separated without destroying both. It all boils down to what Jesus tells us here in verse 36. To those who are listening, he says, be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. Hmm. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. Can we say that we have that kind of love for our enemies? Because when Jesus loved us, we were at enmity with him. How can we say that we're loving if we're not merciful? That's, that's the reason for everything Jesus is saying here. We don't need to seek our own justice because God is both just and merciful. Our Heavenly Father is merciful. And we're made in His image. Mercy is among the primary character traits of the true Christian. How are we doing with mercy? How are we doing with compassion, with forgiveness? Now, is Jesus saying that we should just be doormats? In contrast to the world's standard for mercy, yes. Yes. In contrast to the world's standard for mercy, yes, we should be doormats. Doesn't mean that we don't seek justice for others. That can be an act of love in itself. Doesn't mean that we don't ever defend ourselves. Like, for example, if, if you just let somebody, if I, if I just let somebody kill me for no apparent reason, how am I loving my wife and kids, right? They depend on me, right? If I let somebody kill me, how am I, kill, how am I loving the person that's killing me by just letting him do it? That may not be loving, right? The difference is, who am I loving? Am I doing it out of love for myself? Well, then maybe I'm putting my own life over someone else's life. But if I'm doing something because I love my church family, my kids, or, or Denise, or a perfect stranger, I, I could still be putting someone else's life over mine. Remember the Paul said that he would rather the Corinthian Christians be single like him. It wasn't because it was more spiritual to be single. That's not the case. 1 Corinthians 7, 7 and 8, I'll just read it. I wish that, this is Paul speaking, I wish that all were as myself am. But each has his own gift from God, one of one kind, one of another. To the unmarried and widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. Now here's the thing. There's widespread persecution at that time. Christians are being martyred. You are way, you're way more free to become a martyr if you don't have a family depending on you. So you could take more risks for Jesus in that case. Just If you have a family depending on you, you need to be concerned about how it happens to you because God has called you to care for your family. You can do a lot more if you don't if you don't have that concern. But Paul also continues here in verse 9. He says, but if they can't exercise self-control, they should marry. You know what that means, right? It's better to marry than to burn with passion, right? So <laughs> somebody said amen loud there. I don't know what to make of that. Even in that time, it was better for someone with normal urges to be married, right? But so what's the point here? This isn't speaking about a checking off of the boxes. This is a heart issue. Jesus is, wasn't saying to lay down for every abuse, no matter what, what it costs your loved ones. He's saying to lay down yourself to abuse, no matter what it costs you. Do you see where this isn't a rule with bullet points and exceptions and, and part A and B and, and all that? No. It's dealing with where your heart is. 
It's dealing with an attitude. What is our attitude toward loving our enemies? The only way to obey Jesus, to be the ones who will listen, is for us to regard others as more important and valuable than ourselves. That's the point. Philippians 2, 3, 3 and 4 says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. May each one of us be merciful, placing the needs of others above our own needs. And may we forgive as we have been forgiven. May we love our enemies and so be like our Lord Jesus, that the world would see his mercy in us and that they would know God. Our holy God, we beg your forgiveness. Oh, we beg your forgiveness for not living like Jesus and loving our enemies. Pardon us, oh God, for our refusal to forgive and be merciful and give us hearts and abilities to make that part of our character and personality both individually and as a church. Oh, Father, forgive us for we have not loved you with all our hearts, minds, souls, and strength. And we have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. Lord, let us be transformed by the words that Jesus shared that we saw this morning. Help us, O oh Lord, to reflect on those and thus to participate in the redemptive purposes of our Lord Jesus. Help us to love our enemies, to do good, and to lend, expecting nothing in return. Fill us, O oh God, with your Holy Spirit that we might be constantly looking out for the needs and interests of others regardless of how it affects us. Make us obedient and faithful disciples of our holy God, Jesus. We offer ourselves over to you as living sacrifices of praise. Go before us as we enter this week and as we embark upon our mission field and ask, we ask you to give us strength in giving hope forgiveness, mercy, and love as we have been given the same. And we pray this in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.